Amen. Well, let's turn together, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. This will be our last week on the hard verses of Romans chapter 1 to 3, the, uh, what you might call the bad news of the gospel. These chapters are pretty dark if you really get into them, which most people don't. They're very bleak. But you might say they're kind of like black velvet, as we're going to see next week. They're like black velvet behind the pearl. Behind the pearl of great price, which of course is Jesus Christ. The grace that's found in Christ in spite of who we are. Yes, it's bad news. But the bad news of the gospel without the good news is not really the gospel. The gospel doesn't really shine then. It becomes cheap grace rather than marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, grace that is greater than the black velvet of all our sin. Go soft on sin and you cheapen the cost of God's solution, right? So we will press on with a passage that is hard on sin, to put it mildly, to prepare ourselves for God's mercy. Today we come to Paul's final discussion of a doctrine which, like none other, magnifies God's mercy at Calvary, just like we sang. And that is the doctrine of man's total depravity. And the purpose of this passage is verse 2 of the song we just sang. By God's word, at last my sin I learned. By God's word, we will learn of our sin today. Then I trembled at the law I spurned till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. So you got to put a comma after all this and not a period. And next week we'll see what follows, what follows the comma. It's Romans 3, starting in verse 9. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? Should we conclude that we Christians in and of ourselves are better than others? Paul says, may it never be. No, not at all, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like a stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drifts from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follows them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now. God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Paul says here, there is no one righteous, not even one. These days, this is one of the most 
countercultural passages that you'll find in the Bible. I mentioned a while back that only half of all Christians, all, half of all Christian believers in America think that they are sinners. And others prefer to say they merely err or make mistakes. I don't know how that happens. You can't be married more than a few weeks without realizing you're a sinner once the honeymoon wears off, if you're anything like me. Only about half even believe that human beings in general are sinners. And of course, uh, this comes from a whitewashed doctrine that's soft on sin and cheapens what it costs God to save us from our sin. But on the other hand, it does take some faith to believe what God says about who we really are. I mean, be honest with yourself. Have you ever thought that Paul is kind of overstating it here? Maybe just a bit. For many years I did when he said, there is none righteous, no, not one. I mean, things are pretty bad. But still, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good people. Even good people, so it seems, who don't even know Christ. It sure looks like it. There's, uh, there's a lot to like in our unsaved friends and family members and co-workers. There's a whole lot of good in the world. So what gives? I mean, are we really as bad as Paul says we are? We're going to see today that things uh, look better than they really are, and that's because, because God protects us from who we really are. He does this continually and unceasingly, so much so that without his protection, without what theologians call God's restraining grace, his restraint on our sin, without that, life on planet earth would long since have become hell on earth. And so it's not really true that the good news will just come next week. No, the good news this week is embedded in our verses for today because long before Christ ever paid for our depravity, he's been protecting us from our depravity. So much so that for most people, this doctrine that we call total depravity contradicts what they see. But it's all because of his restraining mercy, which we're gonna see again and again in our verses for today. So let's unpack them in light of this, in light of the fact that what Paul's talking about here is the world without God, as I've titled this message. What would become of us if left to our own devices? Reading again, starting in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. None who seeks after God? Wait a minute, you might be thinking. Paul had just said in the chapter just before, in chapter 2, that there are those who seek God, that God rewards those who seek him. Romans 2, 7, those who by perseverance and doing good uh, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he rewards them. So what gives? Well, of course, God gives. He gives to us what it takes to come to him because we would never have come on our own. Which is why Christ said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. Yeah, because indeed, on our own, there's no one who seeks after God. But there are also some who do seek after God, and both statements are true. One is true in a world with God, that there are some who seek him thanks to him. And the other would be true in a world without God, that there'd be none who seek him. And what does it take to draw us? Well, we saw in chapter 2 
what it takes, a sum of what it takes. What it takes through God's mercy is itself witness to our uh, depravity. We've seen that so great is our sin, our depravity, that usually it takes a huge personal crisis before we'll seek him, or a natural calamity, or a national catastrophe, which he talks about in chapter 1 and 2, to wake us up. And even then, we so quickly forget what he's trying to teach us, which also bears witness uh, against us. And so often, even those who who do know him don't seek him much harder or for much longer, even after uh, these disasters that he allows, which is just what has happened to our country. I remember back in 9-11, the week after, our church was packed out. Within a few weeks, it was half full. For all have turned aside, moving on to verse 12, together they have become useless. Useless, isn't that overstating it a bit? Together they have become useless. And just so we don't miss the point, Paul goes on to say, there is none who does good, verse 12b. There is not even one. You mean to tell me there's not an ounce of good being done anywhere? What about, you know, the firefighters at Ground Zero and the police who protect the public safety and the teachers who educate our children and the brave men and women that many of you remember who gave their lives in World War II against a great evil and the unbelievers in World War II who saved the Jews from the gas chambers and Mother Teresa and the doctors and the nurses, the heroes of our COVID crisis. And I've done some good too and so have you and so has this church. Is it true that there is none who does good? Not even one. Well, it depends on your perspective. Paul's quoting here from the Old Testament, from Psalm 14, where it says, The Lord has looked down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. David's taking a heavenly perspective here, God's perspective. He starts out, God looked down from heaven. It's a heavenly perspective, not an earthly one. The one that comes from looking down from heaven on the sons of men. And this verse in Psalm 14 is itself a quotation that gives us the mother load of understanding into what Paul says. It's a quotation from Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 5, just before the flood, where, God, where it says that God looked down and saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. God looks down from heaven, and when he does, he looks first to the inner man, not to the outer appearance. This tells us that the first thing God does, that God sees, is the degree to which our thoughts and our motives aren't as they ought to be. The degree to which our thoughts and our motives turn our best deeds, our righteousness, into filthy rags. He sees how even our virtues can be, as someone said, vices in disguise. How we can be so pridefully humble, like that Texas bumper sticker, humble and proud of it. You know, how we can be so selfishly loving on the inside. We, we show love in order to get love. We can be so angrily patient. I can, get, I can be, look so patient, but I'm steaming. How 
He sees how injured we can feel deep down inside when someone else is praised. And how, for, how much we do to be seen of men and how for this purpose we endeavor to shine. How, how, um, we're, how we say we're working so hard to support our families, but equally it can be a prideful pursuit, proving ourselves to be better than our peers, climbing the corporate ladder. So much. When God looks down from heaven, he sees, yeah, wicked words and deeds, but far more he sees the thoughts behind our most righteous deeds. He sees all the thoughts and intentions that would be brought to fruition in the form of action were it not for his constant intervention. What intervention? Well, it's right here in Genesis 6. Genesis 6-3, where God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. My, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. And what that means is this. God was continually striving against their sin, even as they continually set their hearts on their sin. That is, he was holding it in check. He was pushing back against their depravity with a huge degree of restraining mercy. You see, as God looks down from heaven on our sin, his spirit labors on earth against our sin. And so he knows all the thoughts and intentions that would have been brought to fruition were it not for his, his like draconian intervention. Which is why Christ said in Matthew 5 that everybody who is angry with his brother shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. And everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And one reason this is true is that those intentions of inner anger, murderous anger, of inner uh, lust would be as good as done were it not for his intervention. Had not the Spirit in many different ways been striving against our sin. You talk about protection of the firemen and the police and the brave men of World War II and all the rest. We are being protected from a far greater depravity by, by the invisible hand of God Almighty. Because without his restraining grace, life on planet Earth would long since have become a very hellish place. So here in Romans 3, Paul's quoting from the Old Testament passages which take a heavenly perspective on sin to help us see what God sees and to help us learn what God does and to help us know what only God knows about who we really are to send us to our knees at Calvary. Especially as his people. If my people humble themselves, and pray, then I will heal their land. So how does he do this? We've seen the principle that he does restrain sin. How does he keep us from becoming as bad as we really are? Well, again, we need to unpack chapter 3 
in light of its biblical context. The scripture is the best interpreter of itself. And we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 that one huge way he has done this is through his judgments, through his apocalyptic interventions. We've talked about how they cycle through history, God's discipline on men and nations, his fatherly discipline, his relentless love, where he, where he brings these things into check and causes us to look upward and cry for his help, where he gives us over to who we really are and says, is this what you really want? But not only does it take the heavy-duty artillery of his discipline to check our depravity, it takes the heavy-duty, you might say, machinery of government. How so? Well, we'll see once we hit Romans 13 how much he restrains evil through human government how we're to be in subjection to the governing authorities because he says in Romans 13, 1, they are a minister of God to you for good to hold in check the one who practices evil. Now, I know, I know, human government can be <laughs> pretty human, <laughs> right? There's a lot that's not good about the government, and most of us are fully aware of this. That's like Ronald Reagan said. One way to make sure crime doesn't pay would be to let the government run it. He also said, government's view of the economy could be summed up in a few short phrases. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. And if it stops moving, subsidize it. Mark Twain, by the way, said, the only difference between a tax man, you've probably heard this, and a taxidermist is that the taxidermist leaves the skin. <laughs> but on the other hand, just go to, you know, as bad as our government can be, as bad as our police can be sometimes, just go to Somalia or a whole lot of other third world countries and you'll be singing Uncle Sam's praises. For all the bad press they receive, as corrupt as governments can be, they're a whole lot better than anarchy. Which is why Paul says in Romans 13, 4, that they are a minister of God to you for good. He's talking about the Roman Empire, which was hugely corrupt back then. A minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil, which is what it takes to restrain our depravity, the heavy artillery of the governing authorities. Which is why Paul, Paul goes on to say, rulers are not ca a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. It is a minister of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Be afraid. What Paul's saying here is that these governmental authorities from presidents to mayors, to the police, the entire uh, hierarchy of the authority that God places over us for our good is a source of fear, and fear is good. Such is our depravity that fear is necessary to hold it in check. This applies in many different ways. You know, starting with the foot that I put on the brake driving up I-25 when I saw flashing lights in my rearview mirror. And I praise God, he went right by me. Fear. <laughs> and that same emotion, pounding in millions of fleshly hearts, in all sorts of different situations, at all levels of society, through the day and through the night, all across the land, that same reaction of fear provoked by some government authority keeps all hell from breaking loose. 
Just talk to any police officer and they'll tell you what's out there. Like God, they'll tell you what, that we have no idea what they're holding in check, what's in, on the underbelly of humanity. John Calvin put it this way, it would indeed be better for us to be wild beasts and to wander in forests than to live without government and laws. For we know how furious human passions are. Unless therefore there be some restraint, the condition of wild beasts would be better and more desirable than ours. Liberty then would bring would ever bring ruin with it were it not bridled and connected with regular government. Will Durant, the great historian, put it this way. Continue to express your dissent in the public square, but remember to remain civilized, for you will sorely miss civilization if it is sacrificed in the turbulence of change. And if that's not a word for today, I don't know what is. We dare not wink at lawlessness, even if it's for a good cause, because anarchy is a greater evil. It's happened again and again down through human history when forces of anarchy have hijacked good causes to bring about far greater evils. It's a regular pattern. Yes, we need to pursue justice for the oppressed, especially in a democracy where we have a voice. And people do get oppressed by governments and even by our own government, just as they did in the Roman Empire. But equally, we must remember to remain civilized. For we will sorely miss civilization if it is sacrificed in the turbulence of change. Are we really that bad? To a Romans three degree? <laughs> the lawlessness we're seeing today from Oregon to Georgia is just a glimpse of the degree to which God restrains evil from the outside in through the government through the, and through the civilization that it makes possible. And Paul also teaches in Romans that God restrains evil from the inside out through what you might call our, the internal government that he's given us, otherwise known as the conscience, which is also a minister of God for good against the evil that's not just in the underbelly of society, but in our own underbellies individually. How so? Well, again, letting the scripture explain itself, uh, letting Romans 2, in this case, explain Romans 3. In Romans 2, Paul said that our conscience, if you remember, alternately accuses and defends us, bearing witness to God's standards of right and wrong. These words in the Greek, defending uh, and accusing, carry like a judicial weight. It's a weighty voice that he's placed in us. And like the government, you don't really appreciate the difference the conscience makes until it's gone. How so? Well, listen to what one man wrote about the conscience in a book called the Snow Papers, subtitled A Memoir of Illusion, Power, Lust, and Cocaine, of someone who was, used to be addicted to cocaine, which used to be the drug of choice for over 30 million Americans, and it still is to a good degree. He says this, Cocaine totally killed my conscience. That's what it does, along with other drugs. 
I had never considered myself a thoroughly honest person, but before cocaine, I was always able to check myself before doing anything outrageously out of line. I always cared about honor, and I generally was able to keep within the bounds of common decency. After I got deeply into cocaine, there were no bounds. God help us on our own. It wasn't that I didn't know I was lying, but I felt that I could lie without being punished. I was specially endowed and specially empowered. I, was, I embarked on great causes, and the ends totally justified the means. My conscience was simply dead. We all need the nagging of conscience, he concludes. It is a mechanism we barely understand. He doesn't, but we do, thanks to Romans 2. But we know it prevents us from cutting too many corners and keeps us responsible to others and to ourselves. Cocaine destroys that mechanism, and when it does, all hell breaks loose. Our conscience is a little bit more than just, you know, Jiminy Cricket. Just like the government is a little bit more than just Uncle Sam. No, they are ministers of God Almighty, according to the Scripture that hold in check our thoughts and our intentions. They're, they're, they're draconian interventions that we don't fully appreciate until they're gone. So, what would you say if you were looking down from heaven like God does? If you were striving against all of this, against the whole world, until it feels like forever, even if you're God? What would you say if you were putting your shoulder, you know, to planet Earth, knowing that if you got out of the way, if you let up for just a moment, it would lumber down a highway to hell? You've done everything possible to preserve the human race from the heavy artillery of your loving discipline and judgments on the human race to the heavy-duty uh, machinery of government to the point of giving man a governing conscience to a whole lot else. And you know the degree to which everything that's good comes from you, as James tells us. Yet they do not acknowledge you of God, as God, Romans 1.21, or give thanks. And on top of that, there's a fist in the face of your goodness and grace. You'd say, there's none righteous. No, not one. But I'm afraid it doesn't stop there. Paul's not done. This goes on and on. He's really rubbing it in, so I guess I'll have to as well. Though to be honest, I'd much rather move on. We will next week. Verse 13, their throat, he says, is an open grave. This is a biblical image of murder, of swallowing the innocent, both literally and figurative. Their throat is an open grave, as, as in millions of, of innocent babies slaughtered every year, and evangelical Christians have about the same rate of abortion as the world does. This is the open grave of genocide that we see around the world, of the anarchy that we're starting to see, which often begins in the name of what looked like good causes, but ends in what happened through Stalin, through Hitler, through Mount Zedong, to the killing fields of Cambodia, to Uganda, to Congo, to Somalia, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. But it's not just them. No, it's us. Because this applies figuratively, too, to our own throats, our open graves, thanks to our tongues. 
As it says in Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power uh, of the tongue. Or Proverbs 12.18, there is one who speaks rashly like thrusts of a sword. Have you ever done that? I've done that with Julie sometimes. Therefore you have heard it said you shall not commit murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. For the things that proceed from the mouth come from the heart, Proverbs 15, 18, and those defile the man. And what proceeds from the mouth Matthew 15, 19, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. He's saying we murder with our mouths. And what that means is this. If our tongues were swords, if their intentions were carried out, we'd be serial murderers. Like the woman, <laughs> the woman who said, when I get angry, I just get it off my chest. It's over in a few seconds. To which her friend replied, so is a shotgun blast. <laughs> Ever done that? I have no respect for justice, says the tongue. I maim and kill. I break hearts and ruin lives. I am cunning and malicious and gather strength with age. The more I am quoted, the more I am believed. I flourish at every level of society. My victims are helpless. They cannot protect themselves against me because I have no name and no face. To track me down is impossible. The harder you try, the more elusive I become. I am nobody's friend. Once I tarnish your reputation, it's never quite the same my name is gossip. Indeed. Their throat is an open grave. And then he ends his description of the world without God with this. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's just focus on fear of God. No fear of God. Not even after the draconian intervention of 9-11, the global financial crisis and COVID, not even among Christians. The Christian right is focusing on their rights these days. I'm not wearing a mask. Rather than on their repentance. And the fear of God? According to George Barna, over three-quarters of Christians in post-September 11 America said they do not fear God. And the same percentage think that while he does intervene in their personal lives, it's only very, in very positive and supportive ways. Is that the God you know? Need we say more? which moves us, finally, <laughs> to Paul's conclusion. He tells us how, uh, now, what his goal has been all along. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law to keep people from having excuses so that every mouth might be closed. This has been Paul's agenda for three chapters now, through the scrutiny of the law to expose our depravity to the point that we'd not excuse ourselves. And he says here he did this so that we'd finally lay on our hands on our mouths. So we'd become, as he says, accountable to God, completely, abjectly, 
hopelessly flat on our face, begging for mercy at the foot of Calvary. For the law simply shows us, verse 20, how sinful we are, which is what God's law, God's word has done today. Even as God's grace restrains our sin to keep life on planet earth from becoming hell on earth, God's law in love exposes our sin. So we turn to heaven so God's son can redeem us from our sin. Because we can't do it on our own. Again, verse 20, for no one can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what the law commands. For the more we know God's law, the clearer it becomes that we aren't obeying it. And with that, at long last, we can move on. Because Paul moves on from here, from depravity to mercy, from guilt to grace, from the bad news of Romans 3.20, which we just read, to the good news of Romans 3.21, because here in verse 21, Paul goes on to utter what have got to be the two greatest words uh, anywhere in Scripture, or for that matter, in the English language, or for that matter, in any language. The whole world is headed, you know, to hell in a handbasket. He's painted a picture of a world without God, like the blackest of the black velvet, when at last he says two words, two great words, but now. But now. God has shown us a different way of being right in his sight. Not by obeying the law, but by the way promised in the scriptures long ago, we are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus to take away our sins. And we all can be saved in this way, no matter who we are or what we've done. But now. Now for the good news, as we will see over the next several weeks, because our total depravity is the setting for the pearl of great price, who in his great mercy died for all that depravity and rose again to live in our hearts and to transform all of our depravity into greater glory, no matter who we are or what we've done. But now. And to get there, to the riches that lie at the foot of Calvary, we just need to pray the sinner's prayer. And that's how we grow as Christians. We don't just come to faith through repentance. We grow in our faith by repentance, so it's all him and not us. And so I'd like to close today with a prayer by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one that we began this section with well over a year ago. It's a prayer of confession, and it's a fitting conclusion to Paul's descriptions here. And really, it's the ultimate application of all of this. And it's a fitting response to the times that we are in, as we've seen again and again, if my people 
who are called by my name, humble themselves like this and pray. It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Then I will heal their land. So as you feel led, why don't you pray silently as I pray out loud. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, our father. We once thought that those descriptions of our wicked hearts were somewhat strained, but not now. For had it not been for your restraint, we in our unsaved state were capable of anything. And even now, the old sin that abides in us is capable of reaching to a high degree of depravity. And without the new life within us restraining the old death, we know not what we might yet become. We once thought we were humble. But we soon found that our pride will feed on any flattery that is laid at our door. We thought we were believers, but sometimes we are so doubting, so unbelieving, so vexed with skepticism that we would certainly not choose to follow you. That is your work in us. Oh, this base heart of ours. Has it not enough in it to set on fire the course of our lives? It is a wonder to us that you should look on man at all. The most hateful thing in the creation must be man because he slew your son. Yet truly there is no sight that gives you more pleasure than man for Jesus was a man who suffered in our place, who took our sins, who died for the wicked and the brightness of his glory covers all our shame. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Lord, thank you that Jesus paid it all. Lord, our strength indeed is small. Thank you that you say, child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.